Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, on April 2nd, a technology company plans to go live with a space-based aircraft surveillance system, which will track planes globally in real time for the first time ever. Now planes are tracked by radar, but 70% of the planet is uncovered by radar, which is especially problematic over oceans. I did not know that. Uh, joining us here to walk us through this new technology is Don Toma, CEO of Arion, based in McLean, Virginia. Don, this sounds like a game changer technology to me. Is it? That, that's great. That's right, Paul. Thanks for having, having me on the program. Now, this is really being hailed as a major technological advancement in, in aviation. As you mentioned, 70% of the world is not tracked by any, any means at this point in real time, and meaning there's no surveillance for air traffic controllers. And you know, typically, you know, the, the world has been using radar, you know, technology that has been developed you know, back in the 1930s, 1940s as the primary means of, of tracking aircraft for air traffic control. But it, the world's air traffic control organizations are in a program to upgrade that technology to a GPS-based system for tracking their aircraft. And what Arion is doing is bringing that technology to the entire world. Currently, it's limited to some you know, certain regions like the continental U.S., you know, parts of Europe, parts of Australia, etc. But you know, starting next week, we'll begin providing this service to air traffic controllers all over the world um, immediately. So, Don, when I first started reading about this, my, my initial question was, what took so long? Because we've had uh, space satellites for a long time that track a lot of things. So why shouldn't we have some sort of uh, all-encompassing surveillance system? And then it struck me, Maybe this is a security issue, an international issue, and I'm wondering what that challenge was like getting this up and running uh, in order to get clearance to surveil areas that were not within the United States. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. As I mentioned, part of this, part of the reason why this is possible now is first that the world's air traffic control organizations are making this upgrade. You may have heard next gen, the next gen program, the next generation air traffic control program within the U.S. Um, but the U.S., Europe, Australia, Singapore, a few other countries have mandated that all aircraft by 2020 have on board a transponder that will broadcast out that GPS information from the aircraft at a very frequent, very precise level. So first, you had to have all the aircraft equipped with this new technology to make it possible. But then you, you have the limitations of where you can put towers to receive that information. So as I mentioned, the U.S. has deployed 635 towers, Australia's airspace is covered, other countries have put this, this technology in, but it really limits it, the access to it to roughly 30% of the world that, you know, that has you know, th this type of ground-based technology. So really the, the innovation came you know, due to the fact that not only were the aircraft being equipped, but Iridium, you know, the satellite communications company, was in the process of launching their next generation satellite network. So you know, part of that innovation came when we said, well, why don't we, when I, I would used, used to be at Iridium when we were looking at this plans for the next generation, and we said, why don't we use this global satellite-based infrastructure to, that sees every place on Earth and has connections that gets that information back in real time to put these ADSB or these these receivers on board the satellites to receive the information being transmitted by the aircraft. So, 
you know, we put the company together. Um, we raised um, investment with our partners at Nav Canada and the air traffic control organizations of Italy, Ireland, Denmark, and the UK. Uh, formed the company, and seven years later, we have completed the launch of that system and are now ready to go operational live with it. So, so Don, you know, it's a lot of different components that really drove the, you know, the implementation of this capability. Right. So, come April second, talk to us about the adoption here. Do you have to go sell it kind of country by country? How do you exp- get this technology out into the marketplace? Well, it's a, it's a good question, Paul. Then the the issue here is that this is such a game changer. You know, in in you know, in, in aviation, that countries have been working with us for a very long time. So currently, on April 2nd, we'll go live with the Canadian Air Traffic Control Organization, NAF Canada, and the UK Air Traffic Control Organization called NATS, and we'll begin using the service in northern Canada and in the North Atlantic. Now, the North Atlantic is a very busy set of airspace, 1,500 flights a day. You know, it's, it's running out of capacity because there's so much traffic going back and forth between the Europe, Europe and North America. You know, and this is an innovation that not only improves the safety of air travel, but also allows them to add additional flight paths you know, for aircraft into that, that airspace. So we'll go live with those two right away, but right behind them we have nine other air traffic control organizations representing 28 countries around the world that will be you know, are currently receiving the data, doing their own test and evaluation, validation of the service, and we'll yeah. begin operationally using it throughout 2019. Just in 30 seconds, how do you make money? Very, very easy. Think of us as a subscription service. So instead of an air traffic control organization deploying your radars or ground-based infrastructure, we basically collect the data and provide it to them as a subscription service. So they pay us a fee for providing them the surveillance data for their airspace. Really interesting. Don Toma, thank you so much for being with us. Don Toma, Chief Executive Officer of Arion, which is based in McLean, Virginia, offering Space-based aircraft surveillance uh, tracking planes globally, which to me, honestly, my first impression, again, I mean, given how many satellites are up there, it's interesting that this is the first of its kind. There has been a big discussion about how the migration from rural areas to urban areas will likely continue in the years to come. The question is, number one, will it? And number two, how does that affect your investments, both in real estate and beyond? Joining us now, Melissa Reagan, head of research for Nuveen Real Estate, overseeing $125 billion of assets in New York. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, Melissa, thank you so much for being with us. Let's just start with this premise that there will be increased urbanization where you do see people moving from urban and suburban areas into cities. How much do you think that will continue? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, You know, listen, we believe it will continue. And this is not just in the next couple years, but really over the coming decades. Uh, and, And why? So think about what cities offer. They offer an economic base jobs. It's where the vibrancy of these cities, it's where people want to live. It's where when you think about What's a what's a really growing area right now? Technology, right? Well, we know that that is actually cluster based, right? So once you're not near this technology coming, that technology, you're like you all want to cluster together, and that has happened. That happens in cities, and so we think this is a decades long uh, trend that will continue. Well, one of the things that uh, I think is a concern for some people is just infrastructure. Do cities today? Some of the larger cities that are um, you know maybe drawing uh, populations, do they have the in- infrastructure to support it? Uh, yes and no. 
So I would say, but also with that is an opportunity. So when you think about a place like New York and you think about its mass transit, one of the best probably mass transit systems across the entire world, in fact, uh, but, wait, wait, but whoa, it's whoa, aging. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, we well, from anyway, a, but, but, but you missed today. the but, but it's, but it's aging, but it, it's aging and the therein button. is the opportunity. Still kind. <laughs> and therein lies the opportunity, right? When you think about how to, how to invest around infrastructure, uh, municipal financing, things like that. So um, I, I would say there's, there's op- yes and no, and there's opportunities within that. I will just say that I was on the train the other day and it was stopped and my nine-year-old son called the MTA to complain, saying that it was unacceptable because, yes, anyway, moving right along. I will say uh, a lot of the uh, investing strategy also depends on real estate valuations and there's a question, especially as the affordability uh, question uh, rises, it's getting harder for people to buy homes in cities. How does that affect your thesis here? Actually, pretty well. Uh, so from a from a Good. commercial real estate perspective, think about it. I mean, we're not in the home. We're not in buying homes. We're buying apartment buildings, right? And so the demand for apartments, and we've seen this. I mean, vacancy rates for apartments are at your twenty year lows. Why is that? Because home prices are, are are high, and so it's an affordability issue. And so it's really driven demand, particularly in the urban cores, for apartments. So given your urbanization theme, what are some of the markets that surprised you were attractive markets? I mean, I know people think of New York, San Francisco, but what were some of the markets that kind of surprised you as, boy, these are interesting? Yeah. So that's been fascinating, in fact. And so we have this sort of way we look at cities kind of globally, and we, we take that into the U.S., and we think about, you know, where are people moving to, millennials, concentration of wealth, and places like Salt Lake City pop up, Nashville, but even places like Orlando. These are not places that an institutional real estate investor would have thought of 20 years ago. It just They would have said, nope, not interested. But given our analysis and the way we see the world moving, this is where millennials want to be. There's a quality of life there. There's a connectivity there. And so those are the cities that actually, and, and there's I could name 10 more of those. And you'd be like, really? That's, that's really interesting. So this all makes sense. I buy it. I'm buying the the picture that you set out there for longer term. Is now the time to be getting in, given where we are in the housing cycle? So I think there's two components to that in terms of the, you know, there's the residential site, there's the residential market, um, and, and already there, there's been softening. But from a commercial perspective, which is entirely different, um, we actually look at it from a very long-term perspective, right? And so kind of almost outside of a cycle perspective and saying that, these are the cities people want to be in. That is not going to end, and thereby, that is the opportunity. Okay, fair enough. Although in New York City, which is a very vibrant city, it's the most populous city in the United States, we have storefront after storefront that's empty, that's vacant, that is yeah. uh, eating into the value of that commercial real estate. So I have to wonder how this thesis squares with retail, where the model is completely shifting. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, agreed 100% that in retail land, there are structural shifts underway, winners and losers there. And so that what you're seeing when you walk through New York City and the vacant storefronts, losers, but then there's a whole other winner, right? But, but think right, about it. Yep. There's a winner. <laughs> but, but that's just the world is divided in retail, right? And that's where it's going. But, but here's the hard part of that. So you're saying, that's great. There's winners and losers. Who's going to be the winner, right? And so most of my day is spent thinking about who's who is the winner in that in retail? And so when we think about it, we think about necessity, think about a single tenant, right? Or you think about grocery, or you think about what serves an urban community from a necessity, local, sustainable, authentic, like what, what does the millennial want? And they want that authentic, local, sustainable offering. 
So the winners and losers, and it's picking the right winner, which is not, which is the day job and is really right. hard. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, Melissa, one of the things that I've noticed, you mentioned Salt Lake, and I was just kind of going th- through that market recently in that airport, and they're building a, a huge brand new airport. Ski trip. Ski trip. <laughs> <laughs> And it, well, they're it's building this, silicon slopes. I was just about to say, and it's technology. When I think about it? technology, Austin, Texas, it was technology. Uh, is technology kind of what you look for to see sustainable long-term growth? I, certainly that's one component of it. I wouldn't say that's the only component because there can be other things. That, you know, there's finance and, and certainly just business professional jobs. But technology has become at the forefront because think about it. It used to be when you thought about technology, it was really San Francisco and Austin. Well, that's not true today. It's New York. It's... It's Salt Lake City, it's Chicago, it's ev- it's Atlanta, it's Nashville, it's everywhere. Um, so it is one thing we look at. I wouldn't say it's like the only factor, but it is definitely one thing we, we look at. Do you think that the interest in warehouses and in uh, aging homes and facilities, that that has gone too far at this point and is not where the opportunity lies anymore? In, in the warehouse sector? Yeah. Oh, no, I think so. I get that comment a lot of saying, "Well, isn't warehouse sort of pa- you know it's 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 peak pricing or isn't all the demand you know fully baked in?" Um, actually, no. I think there, if you believe, remember my retail comment: winners and losers. What is driving that? The e-commerce right of retail sales, and I don't think that's going away. Like I, I think people are going to continue to shop online. It creates winners and losers in retail, but it is a long-term structural winner behind industrial. Um, and I don't see if that tailwind stops, then then yes, we've got issues we need to look at in the industrial space. But I don't see that stopping. Interesting. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much. Uh, Melissa Reagan, uh, head of research for Nuveen uh, Real Estate, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio, talking about urbanization. And it's uh, at least it's one of the things, you know, you think about it. I hear about it in so many different cities, whether it's in Atlanta or Richmond, you know, kind of, you know not necessarily big top 10 markets. But if they've got a, a technology hub or maybe a healthcare hub, um, that is what can drive growth in some of those markets. Look, it's for the younger people, it's the jobs. For the older people, it's access to healthcare and easy, uh, you know, food and and transportation. So, a lot of arguments for this. Well, interest rates globally continue to grind lower. We actually have negative interest rates in major economies such as Japan, uh, Germany, Switzerland. So to help us get a sense of how to navigate through this unique environment, we welcome Dr. Brendan Brown. Uh, Dr. Brown is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and publisher of the newsletter Monetary Scenarios, uh, and he is based in London. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for joining us. So what do you make of this persistent negative yields in, again, some major markets like Switzerland, Germany, and Japan? Well, the negative rates in in Europe and Japan uh, essentially are are a result of serious monetary manipulation, and the central banks in Europe and Japan have made it clear in response to the softening of the global economy that they're going to go even further into these radical monetary policies. Um, in, in the total picture, uh, it's difficult to see these negative rates as telling you anything seriously about the real economy, because it's a long time since bond markets in those countries have had any economic meaning. Well, Brendan, one thing that I'm struck by is the fact that, yes, this is a symptom of central bank policies in the region, 
true, has been for a long time, not necessarily free market kind of gauge there. That said, the fact that the European economy is not taking off, in fact, it is slowing down in many measurable ways, is raising a a really existential question here. Are negative rates hurting more than they're helping? And so far, the ECB is kind of saying, well, the jury's sort of out, but they're starting to uh, play with the idea that perhaps helping out banks in in different ways. Can you speak a little bit about that? I mean, do you think that uh, they are addressing the issue of the detrimental effects of negative yields in an expedient way right now? Well, the main effect of negative rates on the economies comes through the currency, and the yen and the euro have been seriously depressed by this negative rate regime. The puzzle here is, given the cheapness of the currencies, why investment in the export sectors in Germany in particular and Japan has only been lukewarm even at the peak of a boom last year. And I think what we're seeing there is that businesses realize that this is an artificial situation. And so they're not prepared to rev up fully and haven't been prepared to rev up fully on what may be a transitory manipulated rate. Um, Now, on top of that, we've got the, the position of the banks. And you mentioned Europe. In Japan, in many ways, I think there's a greater hidden problem there that Japanese banks and Japanese financial institutions to escape negative rates have been involved in more and more risky, particularly cross-border lending. And that could create a serious funding issue, particularly in dollar funds, if we get into another period of financial market downturn or stress. So, Dr. Brown, we've been talking about the weakness in Europe, and certainly the Brexit uncertainty has uh, certainly been a contributor to uh, that weakness. I have to ask you, you know, you're based in London, you're right there in ground zero. What is your sense of how this thing is going to play out in terms of Brexit over the next several days? I think it's leaning more and more towards no deal, but no deal doesn't mean crash out or anything else. It probably means uh, everyone staying where they are until uh, there's a bit more clarity on the political direction. In particular, I would imagine that there could be a temporary standstill of a clock turned back to allow time for a leadership election to take place in the Conservative Party. And then we see what happens. Um, If I had to plot a central scenario through all that, it's going to be that we get a new leader of the Conservative Party more in the Brexit side and that new leader will want to start negotiations again on a deal rather than just taking the May deal as it is. So there will be a period, most likely, of so-called no deal. Brexit, to me, reminds me of like a Monty Python sketch. I mean, honestly, at a certain point, you know, let's vote on the vote on the vote of maybe meeting <laughs> and maybe we can discuss something that might actually happen and maybe we can extend the deadline a little bit further. Uh, but, Brendan, I, I do have to wonder, especially as German bond yields continue to decline today, they're they're taking a bit of a breather. But right now, 10-year bond yields in Germany, lower than similarly dated bonds in Japan. Are we seeing the full-on Japanification of the euro? zone, in particular Germany, and what are the implications for rates going forward? I don't think there's a Japanification, partly because I think that Japanification is a myth anyhow. Japan, if you adjust for the demographic demographic factor, has been doing remarkably well and on some measures even better than the U.S. in terms of employed person per head. But I think when you look at the German negative yields, 
why are they at minus 0.10? I would say the critical factor there is that the market has discounted a considerable likelihood of Italy leaving European Monetary Union at some point in the next few years, if not sooner. So what you're seeing in the German bond market is, in fact, an option that what you might have there, if you hold a German government bond at some point, is a reincarnated Deutschmark. Now, that, that's, that's why we are where we are. But nonetheless, negative bond yields are a huge uh, incentive to real estate speculation in Germany. And in a recent note I put out, I do draw attention to the construction boom and the real estate boom in Germany as being a, an important offset to all the bad news we're getting on the export side. So do you feel, let's just push it out there in terms of the European Union, you talked about Italy maybe falling out. What is your view of the European Union in general over the next five to 10 years? Is it going to look materially different than today? Very much so. I think first, a lot of that would, will turn on the key developments in Germany and Italy. And I would say in particular that any sort of Brexit crisis or hard breakout or whatever could accelerate that through leading to political quake yeah. in Germany, in particular middle-sized businesses who are very dependent on the UK market may take um, the, what's happening here as a reason to push harder, uh, vote against Merkel as soon as the European elections in, in late May. Yeah. So I, I do see a growing divergence coming about yeah. between the German and Italian situation, and that being crucial to how EU pans out. Dr. Brennan Brown, thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Brennan Brown, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute uh, and publisher of the newsletter Monetary Scenarios, joining us from London. I want to talk about one particular financial issue in New York City, and that is congestion pricing. It does seem like that plan is moving closer to reality. Joining us now, Henry Goldman, government reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from New York City Hall. Henry, what is the latest on the congestion pricing proposal currently working its way through state and city legislatures? Well, the, there's sort of an agreement in principle between the Assembly, the Senate, and the governor that this is the way to go. Uh, why is it the way to go? Because New York City uh, is facing a twin crisis. We're, we've got traffic congestion in midtown Manhattan that's costing the city uh, economy maybe $20 billion a year, according to the Partnership for New York City. Uh, at the same time, we've got a mass transit crisis uh, where we need an infusion of billions and billions of dollars, and so we need the revenue that congestion pricing uh, could bring us. So that's basically uh, why this thing is uh, developed with such urgency. So, Henry, what is actually the timing here? It seems to have been put on the fast track here. What's the timing? Well, uh, the, the state has a budget that uh, needs to be uh, approved by the legislature by April 1st. So April Fool's Day is the day when uh, the legislature comes up oh with my. the budget. 
That's too right. much. That's rich. April Fool's Day. We passed congestion pricing. Just kidding. Uh, this was a proposal that has been uh, out there and floated for a long time. There are many other cities that have done it. Singapore, Stockholm, London is ex- thinking of expanding or increasing the costs. Why is the opposition so much less powerful this time around? Well, probably because of the compelling nature of these twin crises. We've got uh, just a, a city in Manhattan that's just congested to the point where people can't move. So appointments are missed and uh, people are sitting in their cars and gasoline is burning and asthma is getting It's worse. not that bad. You're making it sound like we're living uh, in a it, cesspool. It's, it's really not it's that really, bad. It is bad. Uh, <laughs> The congestion in midtown Manhattan is costing the city's economy billions of dollars in missed appointments, in work that doesn't get done, in uh, wasted fuel, in medical costs of pollution. So That's all on the congestion side. Then beyond that, we have a subway system that's 100 years old. Uh, we went through a summer of hell last year where... Uh, subway breakdowns became the routine. Uh, all of this has gigantic economic costs and health consequences. So it's it's not a uh, it, it's not a minor or trivial thing. So Henry, how would this actually work? Am I going to be paying higher tolls now? Well, uh, the yes, the answer is yes. Been, well, <laughs> the details have not been worked out, but yes, when you raise revenue, somebody pays. Now, who pays? People who are entering Manhattan's uh, congestion zone south of 61st Street. There will be electronic uh, scanners or transponders or some technology that will scan licenses or use an easy pass-like device. And once you cross that boundary, you will be told a certain amount of money that's yet to be determined. Uh, there was a study a few years ago that uh, said it at $11.52. That was enough to raise maybe a billion dollars in revenue. And that billion dollars in revenue could then be leveraged in municipal bonds to borrow maybe $15 billion dollars. Uh, and pay the debt service on that. So that's the kind of money uh, that's a start. It's only a start in facing the transit needs of uh, the city and the region because there are commuter rail uh, needs that must be uh, taken care of. Now, so who's paying? The people who drive south of 61st Street. Now, let's say you're taking a bus into New York City. Um, I'm sorry, a, a, uh, you're taking a car and you're going to cross a, uh, a bridge into New York City. Uh, those people who are already paying $11 or more on the bridge, they don't want to pay another $11 or more to get into Midtown Manhattan. And there will probably be some system of credits that will allow them to offset the price of taking that bridge. But the bottom line is, Henry, it seems like this is coming. People are going to pay one way or the other. And uh, again, it's been tried, as Lisa mentioned, in other parts of the world. And so this might be 
you know, this might, Lisa, just be the perfect storm, so we'll have to see. Uh, Henry Goldman, thank you so much. Henry's a government reporter for Bloomberg News calling us from New York City Hall, but it just seems like, you know, with what's going on with the mass transit and how much money the mass transit needs, this just might be the revenue solution, so it might be a perfect storm where things can actually get done here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.